turn to 1 Peter chapter 5. We are almost to the end of this letter. It's kind of bittersweet. It's been a long time that we've been spending in this letter that Peter wrote. Um, If you missed the Wednesday night before Easter, then you missed Brother Rich preaching on the first few verses of this chapter. In those first few verses of chapter 5, Peter is instructing the church to operate with a certain structure of authority. That the church is supposed to operate in, in a certain structure. He addresses the elders, the leaders of the church community, and he tells them to shepherd the flock, to act like a shepherd and flock, uh, shepherd the flock of God in a way that honors God, who is the chief shepherd, the ultimate leader of the church. And he also tells those who are not elders to respect and submit to those church leaders. But Peter wraps up all of those commands, as Rich so powerfully reminded us, with a call for both parties to have humility, for both the elders and the non-elders to have humility towards one another. It's this beautiful picture of how the power structure of the church community is built on mutual humility and love and grace towards one another. The power structures that we're so used to in the world, the hierarchy of power, is traded for the church community, for a community that shows humility and love and grace towards one another. It's beautiful. But this call to humility or to be humble is what transitions us to this passage tonight, starting in verse 6. Peter is creeping towards the end of his letter. He's getting to some of those final home run statements of what his letter is all about, and he's going to reinforce for us some of his most important instructions that he has for us as Christians. So in light of all the things that he's said so far, in light of everything he's commanded and instructed, he loads up his conclusion, his final uh, chain of commands, so that these teachings will work their way into their lives. He doesn't simply want to just instruct them and tell them what to do. He wants these things to work their way into their everyday lives. And that's why he repeats them and reinforces them here. So let's, let's read verse 6. Humble yourselves, therefore, under the mighty hand of God, so, so that at the proper time he may exalt you, casting all your anxieties on him because he cares for you. Just pause real quick. I don't know what you're going through. I don't know what's heavy on your heart. If you don't hear anything else tonight, hear this. You can cast your worries and your anxieties on Jesus because he cares for you. He does. Be sober-minded. Be watchful. Your adversary, the devil, prowls around like a roaring lion, seeking someone to devour. Resist him firm in your faith, knowing that the same kinds of sufferings are being experienced by your brotherhood throughout the entire world. And after you have suffered a little while, the God of all grace, who has called you to his eternal glory in Christ, will himself restore, confirm, strengthen, and establish you. To him be the dominion forever and ever. Amen. God, I pray that you illuminate this passage to our hearts and minds right now. Only you have the power to do it by your Spirit. Only the Spirit can interpret the things of the Spirit. So I pray, God, that your Spirit 
would speak to us now. In Jesus' name, amen. So I see three main commands here in this passage. Three main commands. Um, There are other commands within it, but I think these three main commands kind of sum up everything that Peter says, and we can work our way through the passage just by looking at these three commands, okay? Number one, first command, humble yourselves. Humble yourselves. Peter writes, humble yourselves, therefore, under the mighty hand of God. It's connecting back to what he talked about with the elders and the non-elders, how there should be this mutual humility, and he says, now do it. Humble yourselves because of that. So, The important thing here, I think, to see is that humility is not simply a virtue that's necessary for church politics and church structures and church power structures. Humility is a necessary virtue for all of us as Christians. It's basic to who we are as Christians. Our entire life, our very existence, all of our Christian conduct should be marked by humility. So what is humility? What does it mean to be humble? Um, I was going to have you guys talk about that around your tables, but I don't think we have time. Here's what I think is an important definition of humility. Humility is the act of gladly surrendering to who you are in God's world. Humility is the act of surrendering gladly to who you are in God's world. You recognize, this is what it means to be humble, you recognize that God is mighty He is the creator, he's the Lord of all, and you are not. He is the one who has created everything, spoken it by the very words of his mouth, and you are not. You are a creature in his universe. And as you realize that, you realize that that is okay. That that is okay, because the same God who created this world, who is mighty and powerful, is the same God that cares for you and loves you. That he shaped you as a creature in his universe, yes, that's, that shows his power and his might, but it also shows his love and care for you. So it's okay. It's okay to say that God is God and you are not. And, and that's so important because God also cares for you. So this is what Peter goes on to say in regards to humility. Your humility is linked to your trust that God cares for you and that he wants you to cast your anxieties on him. But I think that um, it's important to also see that link there. Now, uh, many people struggle with anxiety or that, that difficult mental, you know, emotional state. And there's a lot of factors around that. It can be very complicated. But I think we can at least say this. When we struggle with anxiety and worry, um, it's oftentimes because we're thinking too much of ourselves and not enough of God. Sometimes we are allowing our pride to build up that anxiety in us. And humility can be a cure. It can be a way to tamper down the anxieties of our life. So instead of casting our anxieties on God, we all have this tendency to let them build up inside of us and bottle bottle them up and let them eat us alive and send us into a frenzy. And I think the part of the reason that we allow sin, any sin, not just anxieties like, or, or depression or anything like that, any reason that we let sin eat us up is because we have a pride issue. We are not, we are not comfortable releasing that to God sometimes. Now again, 
There are a lot of reasons we struggle with sin, and we have continual struggle with sin. It's not an easy one-two fix a lot of times. But sometimes this is where we need to start, with humbling ourselves in, God, in God's universe. So humility is embracing who you were designed to be as a creature in God's universe. Surrendering to this false idea, to this false story that you're in control and that you're worthy to be worshipped. Humility is surrendering to that truth. So humility helps you not make an idol of yourself and instead allows you to embrace your design as an image bearer of God. We are not to make it idols of ourselves, but we are to embrace that we are an image of God. That's who we're designed to be. So it's one of those radical, upside-down, topsy-turvy, weird, ironic things of our human life. That humility is the true path to exaltation. That's what, that's what Peter says. God exalts the humble. So as we surrender to God's lordship and not try to be our own God, that's when God will actually exalt us. So it's the greatest irony of our humanity. This is very important. We find true satisfaction in self-denial. We find what truly satisfies us by denying ourselves. God has designed it in, in this world, in your experience as a human being, that as you seek to lose your life, you will find it in, in God and Jesus. So our deepest desires are only fulfilled by directing them to God. You have deep, God-given desires for community, for love, for satisfaction, for pleasure. But if you do not direct those desires to God, they will crush you and kill you. It's not, not bad to have desires. It's bad to find the fulfillment of those desires in things that were never designed to fulfill them. Your girlfriend is not designed to fulfill your sexual intimacy problems. Your, your mom and dad are not going to fulfill all of the protection needs and security needs that you have in life. Money is not going to satisfy your desire for security and stability. Those things are not designed to give you long-lasting satisfaction. Although your desires are good, you're finding a home for them in the wrong things. So our deepest desires are only going to be satisfied and fulfilled when they're directed to God. So we could talk about that for hours, but let's move on to the second command. Number two, be sober-minded, watchful. Peter instructs his readers, he says, be sober-minded, be watchful. He's commanded this before, to be sober-minded, and we talked about how we can have a focused life, how we can root out some distractions in our life, right? We have a tendency to live distracted lives. Um, we talked about our phones, how we can maybe limit some distraction with our phones. But why does Peter command Christians to be sober-minded and watchful here? He says, because you have an enemy, and that enemy is seeking to destroy you. Peter says, your adversary, the devil, prowls around like a roaring lion seeking someone to devour. So Peter commands or compares the, lion, or the devil to a lion, and he says that he's on the prowl, and he's seeking for an opportunity to devour you. Be encouraged, okay? <laughs> the devil is a lion that is prowling around seeking to devour you. Whoa. Okay? Wow. So imagine if there was a lion loose in your house, okay? 
get this guy in your house. Just imagine if you had a lion in your house. And I'm not talking about like you have so much money that you bought a pet lion and it's tame and it eats like grapes. I'm talking about a serious man-eating lion and he's loose on your house. What would you do? Would you just settle in and watch some Netflix for a few hours? Maybe scroll through Instagram, make a snack, maybe a steak? No, hopefully not. Hopefully you're not that ignorant. Um, hopefully, you would be watchful. You would be aware to the presence of a lion in your house. Maybe uh, loading up a rifle, building a fort, calling in reinforcements. Maybe, um, you know, like studying the book of Daniel to figure out how to get away from lions. Um, but honestly, the point is, it's Pazona <laughs> back in here. The point is, now that you've all have your lion protection strategies in place in your mind right now, the point is, you do not carry on with life as usual in this lackadaisical manner with a lion on the loose. That's, that's not how you would properly live in such a situation. You are focused. You are prepared. And furthermore, you do not tease the lion. You do not tease a lion. Um, we have a cat named Ruth. I love to tease her. It's great. I think she still loves me, but I'm not sure. But um, I would not tease Ruth if she was a 400-pound man-eating lion. I would not tease her. I would not walk around the house with, like, raw meat draped around me. I would not be, you know, putting a laser pointer around my walls. I would not want to tease her or tempt her to attack me. Um, but this is, this is the point. The devil wants to devour you, and how does he do that? He tempts you with sin. He's, he wants to lead you to a path of destruction. So this is why in the Lord's Prayer, Jesus prays to keep us far from temptation. He pleads with the Father, teaches us to plead with the Father that we would be far from temptation, that we would not even get near the opportunity for us to sin. We'd not even be tempted to sin. So we don't want to tease sin. We don't want to even be tempted by it. And that's because we know it will lead to destruction. It will lead to chaos. It will lead to brokenness. So what sins are you teasing in your life? Are you letting a, ro a lion roam in your bedroom when you are alone at night with your phone? Are you letting a lion roam in your relationships by holding a grudge and refusing to forgive? Are you letting a lion roam in your relationship with your boyfriend or girlfriend by not setting boundaries for physical intimacy? Are you welcoming the temptation of drunkenness by hanging out with those people? Are you teasing the opportunity for self-worship by not monitoring your social media and allowing yourself to constantly become the center of attention? Are you teasing the lion by not making time for God, worshiping with other believers, or prioritizing sports or academics over time with Jesus? Are you teasing the lion? Are you allowing some things in your life to tempt you constantly? Or are you serious? Are you watchful? Are you determined to actually deal with the fact that this is a, there, there's a war? There's a wartime mentality that we need to have. There is a devil who is prowling around, and he's seeking to destroy me. He's seeking to derail me from my path with God. There's also sin 
inside of me that wants to work its way into my life? Am I serious about that battle? Am I focused? Am I determined? Am I setting boundaries in my life to not even tease those opportunities? One more important thing here that I, I feel is necessary as we're talking about enemies. Um, our enemy is not other people. This is what Paul says in Ephesians 6. For we do not wrestle against flesh and blood, but against the rulers, against the authorities, against the cosmic powers over this present darkness, against the spiritual forces of evil in the heavenly places. So our, our, our enemy in life is not other people. Our enemy in life is not things. Like, just because maybe our phones tempt us does not mean that that is our enemy, right? So our enemy in life is not other people or things in the created order. Our enemy is a spiritual cosmic power that is at at work. Our enemy is the devil and the cosmic powers of evil that have been at work for a long time. So past week, we talk about the, the incidents that happened in Sri Lanka. Um, a group of Iris, I, ISIS, not Irish, a group of ISIS terrorists killed over 250 people on Easter Sunday, primarily targeting Christians and church services. I mean, just as you imagine, right now, we are freely worshiping in this room. We're talking about Jesus. We have our Bibles open. And imagine... The danger, the just crazy event that that would be if someone walked in here. And simply for the fact of you gathering for the the name of Jesus, they want to murder you and kill you. There are, uh, as we said, our brothers and sisters in Christ are dealing with this reality, sometimes on a daily basis. But there's something important to say about that. As we, we hear about terrorism, as we hear about Christians being killed for their faith, Those murderers who committed that evil are not our enemies. Those people who wish to see Christians killed and wiped off the face of the planet are not our enemies. Paul says there's a cosmic evil that is at work in them that's bringing havoc into God's world through them. And our enemy is the spiritual power motivating them. See, the good news about this is, and why this is so important, is that Jesus has defeated those cosmic evils. By soaking up that evil on the cross, rising again the third day, swallowing up sin, evil, and eventually he's going to swallow up death. See, the very war that those people waged on Easter Sunday was defeated on an Easter 2,000 years ago. The battle that they're trying to fight has already won by Jesus 2,000 years ago. And that means we radically love our enemies and point them to Jesus. That's what that means. A pastor of one of the churches in Sri Lanka, this is what he says. Just let this quote sink in. We are hurt, we are angry also, but still, as the senior pastor of Zion Church and Batacola, oh, uh, whatever, The whole congregation, every family affected, we say this to the suicide bomber and also to the group that sent the suicide bomber, that we love you and we forgive you. No matter what you have done to us, we love you because we believe in the Lord Jesus Christ. Because we believe in the Lord Jesus Christ, we do not let let oppression, persecution, 
turn our enemies into people. Our enemies are not the people that afflict us and oppress us and persecute us. Our enemy is the devil and the cosmic spiritual powers that are at work in them. Peter says that a firm faith resists the devil. So when you stand firm in your faith, you are trusting that God has the victory, and you're looking forward with hope, and you're bringing that victory into the present by loving others in the same way Jesus did. So seeing the evil powers at work in the world, Jesus cut out that evil from its source and freed people to be restored in their relationship with God. When you experience evil, genuine evil, you are supposed to look past that person to the spiritual evil that's motivating them so that you can continue to love that person. So this is so important. Know that your adversary is the devil, that your battle is not with flesh and blood, and it will free you to love those people that oppose you in life. If you know that the true enemy is not that person who's insulting you, not that person who is oppressing you or persecuting you or making fun of you, if you know that that's not the enemy and that your battle is not with them, but it's actually with the devil and the spiritual powers beyond them, that means you are free to love that person who is opposing you. And that's exactly what Jesus did. He took those people that were opposing him, spitting in his face, literally nailing him to a cross, and he says, Father, forgive them because they don't even know what they're doing. They don't even know the power that's working in them right now. So forgive them. This is what Christ-like love looks like, guys. If we feel, if we respond to, to terrorism and tragedy by making enemies out of people, we're not acting like Jesus. So, as we understand that our true adversary in life is the devil, that our battle's not with other people, it will free us to love others. Here's the last main command we see in this passage, and it's not worded as a command by Peter. He tells us a truth, and from that truth we can apply this command. Number three, have confidence in God. Have confidence in God. Peter says, after you've suffered a little while, the God of all grace who has called you to his eternal glory in Christ, he will restore you, he will confirm you, he'll strengthen you, and he'll establish you. So Peter is telling us that our God is faithful to bring us to glory, to restore us. He's told us this time and time again, that as Christians, suffering is not the end of our story. And again, he comforts us with a glimpse of our future. So in light of all of this, he's calling us to have confidence in God. And I want to give you three practical things that will help you generate confidence as we see in this passage. How can you be confident in God? How can you be confident in God? Number one, endure the suffering. It is temporary. Endure the suffering. It is temporary. If you want to build your trust and confidence in God, Endure in the midst of suffering. Expect suffering. Remind yourself that that's part of you sharing in the story of Christ, that you also get to suffer with Christ. And thank God that it's temporary. So we will suffer for a little while. You may be suffering right now. But have confidence in God by enduring through it, enduring in it, and knowing that it's temporary. Number two, embrace the process he will restore you. 
I hope there's a phrase that you remember because I use it so much here. But God has saved you to change you to be more like Jesus for his glory. This means that if you're a child of God, a follower of Jesus, then God has brought you into a process, beginning with new birth, and it's ending in complete transformation. That's what it means to be a Christian. You've been brought into a process that starts with new birth, that ends in complete transformation. And between those two stages, there will be slow, gradual, moment by moment, day to day change. And growing pains are often hard. They're difficult. They're full of suffering. The Bible describes it as pruning. It's being cut. So that growth can be hard. It can be difficult. But take comfort in the fact that the process reveals the promise. The fact that you're going through the process of change to be more like Jesus reveals that God has started a work in you and he will bring it to completion. The process reveals the promise that God has on your life. So embrace that process and trust that God will restore you. Number three, exalt Jesus. It is all for his eternal glory. Peter closes out verse 11 with this doxology, uh, praising the glorious goodness of Lord Jesus. He says, to him be dominion forever and ever. So this is the purpose for all things the praise and glory of God through the Lordship of Jesus. This is why we can be confident in what God is doing, because Jesus is Lord. Jesus has won the war, defeated our enemy, crushed the power of sin, hell, and death, and he is calling the shots in the universe, and he calls you his child. King of kings, the Lord of lords, the one who holds this world in the palm of his hand, calls you his child. And if you're struggling to have confidence in God, look to Jesus, the exalted king who has welcomed you into his kingdom. So if you're struggling to have confidence that God has you, that God is with you, that God is for you, endure the suffering. It's temporary. Embrace the process because God will restore you and exalt Jesus. Remind yourself of Jesus time and time and again because it's all for his glory. So I want to close with this. It is not so much the strength of your faith as much as it is the faithfulness of your Savior. You will go through seasons of drought. I don't know if we talk about that enough in the church. You will go through hard times. You will go through times of depression of anxiety, of confusion, of loneliness, of struggle with sin, of suffering, your faith may take a few heavy blows. You may be hit pretty hard with life. But if you want to recenter your confidence in God, remind yourself that Jesus took the heaviest blow for you. You may get hit hard, but Jesus was hit for you. He took your suffering and he defeated it. So when the strength of your faith seems like it's failing, and it will, you guys need to hear that, sometimes you're going to doubt your faith. When that happens, direct your heart to the faithfulness of your Savior. He's never failed you and he's not going to start now. So let's close with 
this, this question. Where are you placing your confidence? Listen, we're all placing our confidence in something. Whether that be social success, bank accounts, our looks, our intellect, even our church attendance or Bible knowledge. Some of us are banking on those things. That's where we have our confidence. I know this much about Jesus, so I'm good. All of those things will crumble under the weight of our imperfections. If we continually place confidence in anything other than Jesus, it will fall apart because we're imperfect. And ultimately, if we're not trusting Jesus, we're trusting ourselves. If we're not placing our confidence in Jesus, we're placing confidence in ourselves. But if we place our confidence in Jesus, then we will find the stability and satisfaction that we could never fabricate on our own strength. Like we said, we find true satisfaction in self-denial, in humility. Our deepest desires are filled by directing them to God and our confidences in Christ alone. So um, I want to give you guys a moment to consider this question. Uh, the band's going to come up. We're going to sing. <clears throat>